This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Superintendent David Smith. He's the superintendent of Joshua Tree National Park down in Southern California. David earned a BS in Forestry Development Studies at the University of California in Berkeley, and he also has an MS in Resource Interpretation from Texas State University. He's the national winner of the Freeman Tilden Award for Excellence in Interpretation. So, David, welcome. It's great to be talking with you and find out about Joshua Tree. Well, I, I love talking about Joshua Tree. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, you've had quite a career. You've uh, been 22 years in the National Park Service, and you've actually served in a number of national parks. Oh, it's uh, actually closer to 30 years now. So oh, really? Time, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> That's great. Well, you grew up in San Diego, and Joshua's tree not, is not too far to the east. As a kid growing up, my you know mom and dad would take me climbing here and and camping, you know. But that was that was like fifty years ago when uh-huh. you know hardly anyone came out to to Joshua Tree, and you know now it is this this mecca for climbers and also for folks throughout. I was going to say the Southland, but you know European visitation during the summertime is probably one of the biggest things you see inside the park. Lots of German and French and and Dutch visitors hanging out here in the park. Oh yeah. So uh, what's the elevation range in the park? Well, you know, in the middle of the Pinto Basin where it gets super hot in the summertime and, you know, temperatures are like in the 115 kind of range, you know, we're down to about oh, six, 700 feet in elevation. The highest point inside the park is Quail Mountain, and that's right around 5,900 feet. So you've got about 5,000 feet of elevation change throughout the park. Wow. That's quite a lot. No wonder it's a uh, Becca for climbers. Well, you know, I, I would say, you know, most folks really are in that kind of 4,000-foot range where you've got the Joshua Tree community and you've got mm-hmm. the, the pinions and the junipers. Uh, so, you know, folks like to they like to see their, our namesake. They also like to go rock climbing, and that's mostly in the higher elevations in the park. Our big chunks of wilderness throughout the park, the 80% of the park that is mostly wilderness, you know, that's as you, you head to the east and you drop down into the lower Colorado desert. That's the place you want to go if you really want to get away. Away from from other human beings, uh, you know the Coxcomb Mountains are a great place to visit. But you know you are truly on your own in these places. Oh, neat! Well, I understand that there are two deserts uh, that are encompassed within the park. Right. The eastern side is, is the lesser known. That's the Colorado, and it is a sub-desert from the Sonoran Desert. Most folks have heard of the Sonoran Desert, but it's it's a drier version of it. Once you get west of the Colorado River, you know, precipitation drops by about 50%. So, you know, if you're down in the Coxcombs, you know, two inches of rain a year is, is pretty much a normal average rainfall. If you move over into the western side of the park, so the section that's, you know, four to 6,000 feet in elevation, you enter the Mojave, and the Mojave is where, you know, the Joshua Tree namesake species is really, you know, comes from. Uh, You know, it tends to have, you know, cooler temperatures in the wintertime, tends to get snow. You know, you've got precipitation of about maybe six to ten inches of rain a year, so a much more diverse assemblage of woody plants and animals as well that take advantage of it. So, you know, things like bigghorn sheep, mule deer, you're going to see more of those larger 
ungulates on in the northwestern corner of the park. Ah, uh-huh. and how? What are the dimensions of the park? Well, it's just shy of 800,000 acres, so mm-hmm. a little bit bigger than, than Rhode Island, a little bit smaller than Delaware. It's about 80 miles wide, going from east to west, and about okay. oh, 40 to 50 miles going from north to south. It, looks, right? it kind of looks like a duck. If you were to look at a map, it looks like a duck, so it's a little <laughs> bit confusing. When FDR created it back in the 30s, you know, he took a, a big chunk of public land, and at that time, there were plenty of mining claims inside of it. You know, there was some private property inside of it. And over the next, you know, 80 to 90 years, you know, we've been able to configure it in such a way to either acquire a lot of those inholdings, or some of them were actually excluded and were open for mining and became public property. Uh, does it extend down to the Mexican border? No, no, not quite to Mexico. You can see Mexico from up at Keys View. You can see Signal Mountain down on the border. But no, it does, does not quite make it down to Mexico. That would be kind of nice. Tell me a bit about the history. Well, if we go back, you know, humans we know have been living here for about 10,000 years. Oh. That's right at the end of the last ice age, at a time when it was much cooler here. And the, the lowest point in the park was much more marshier at the time. And you have a lot of the, the megafauna that you see that are associated with the last ice age. So, you know, the, the giant ground sloths, camels. You know, those types of animals were in existence in that area, and the humans that lived here at the time were, were hunting after those, those mega fauna. Um, you know, over the next, you know, eight, 9,000 years, uh, different cultures have come and gone, and our current tribes, we, we have 15 associated tribes that call Joshua Tree home in some way or an, another. They still exist. They still exist as cultures and as reservations, you know, around the park and in this portion of San Bernardino and Riverside counties. So they, they continue to use the park. Uh, we've got a reservation just on the, the northern boundary here in 29 Palms, in fact. And then you know, settlers started coming out here in like the 1860s, 1870s, bringing cows, which is really hard to imagine sometime when you're, when you're hiking through the middle of the desert, imagining you know, homesteaders coming out with cattle. But we know from the tree records from the time, as well as from other records, we were seeing rainfall from you know, the 1860s to about 1920. That was about twice what we see today. Mm. So for about a 60 to 80 year period, you had a lot more rain. And as a result, the native grasses, things like Indian rice grass, you know, needle and thread grass, things like that, were a lot more abundant. The bunch grasses were more abundant, and so cattle were really able to take advantage of that. But during the 20s and 30s, when, you know, the Dust Bowl was affecting the country. Weather patterns were changing here in the desert. You know, the rainfall dropped you know, pretty much what it is today, so about half of what it was then. And those grasses disappeared, and they were replaced by a lot of the weeds that came out with the cows. So things like red brome and sheet grass and today chismus, those are all exotic grass species that have spread throughout the park, uh, which has made it really difficult for cows and other things to live here. Do you have a, do you have a program to pull out those uh, grasses? <laughs> Yes, I could use some volunteers to pull out a lot of grass. Just Jay, there's too much. You know, the whole park is covered in this grass, and it loves fire, which is something that is new to the park that was introduced when these grasses came along. So what we do now is we're trying really hard to protect the remnant populations of, of Joshua trees that we call refugia. So these are the Joshua trees that have never burned before. 
that have you know been living there for centuries. We, you know, we bring out fire crews, we bring out youth conservation corps, and we use our own staff to go out to create fire breaks around some of these these populations and even individual trees at times as a way to protect them as climate change is affecting us here at Joshua Tree. You know, these are wilderness areas, you know, so officially congressionally designated wilderness. And as a, as a wilderness advocate and, and someone who believes in following the law, it has been a real challenge for me to change my mindset over the last, you know, five to ten years as I've seen the effects of climate change mm-hmm. and what it's doing on our, our population inside the park. So I think about four years ago is when we first started using herbicides to create these larger fire breaks around these areas and sometimes even doing it in wilderness. Now, we go through the process of legally complying with the Wilderness Act to do these things, but just in my gut sometimes, you know, the idea of using herbicides inside of a national park or, you know, even using mechanized tools to cut back these grass species has been really, really tough. But I also recognize that unless we're proactive on this right now, I'm not going to be able to pass off this park to the next generation as Josh Tree National Park. It's going to be, you know, Weed National Park. So that's a, a tough challenge that, that I personally have been facing and our management team's been facing. But I, I think we've, we've kind of come to an acceptance that, well, you know what, it's going, to take, it's going to take a while to deal with climate change. You know, it's going to take a while until we, we really get our, our carbon footprint to be less than what it is today. And so I need to preserve that population of Joshua trees until that time, and so that's what I'm doing today. It ha- it has a mining history too, doesn't it? Oh yeah, the, there are hundreds of mining claims. That's true for all of our desert parks out here. You know, Death Valley, Mojave, Joshua Tree. You know, folks came out here turn of the century. You know, through the 30s and 40s, and well, even in the 50s, folks were looking for uranium throughout the Southwest. Not so much here. So you know, there's lots of mining claims throughout the park, and without water. It's, it's a real challenge. There are dry plaster miners that still, you know, work a lot of the public lands around the park, but not inside the park. We have worked with partners to purchase a lot of the mining claims inside the park and also to purchase inholdings at will that were, were patented mining claims that are now part of the park. The Mojave Desert Land Trust has been our, our key partner in helping to acquire tens of thousands of acres uh, inside the park that were once mined. Gosh, I've got a couple staff members right now. Their main job is basically going to these mines and uh, you know providing some sort of protective cover so folks don't fall into them and still allows for wildlife to get in and out. So we grate a lot of our mines if there's a bat species living inside of it. If there's not any, any bats or any other animals living inside the mines, we use this, this foaming, this expansion foam technique, which creates a plug in the top of the mine. So you're able to preserve the, the historic remnants of the mine, but also you prevent people from falling into that mine. Mm-hmm. So the park was uh, originally a national monument in uh, 1936. You're right. A, a woman named Minerva Hoyt from Pasadena, California, was horrified when she'd drive out to the Palm Springs area and she was seeing the number of, of cacti that were disappearing from the landscape as people would acquire them and bring them back to their homes in Southern California. So she, uh, she petitioned the president at the time and went on a, a one-woman campaign, you know, accompanied by the volunteers from the Pasadena area to go ahead and let folks know that, hey, you know what, the desert is a special place. It merits protection, and it is fragile. And she was very successful. In fact, you know, FDR creates this huge 
monument. Initially, they were going to call it Desert Plants National Monument, but you know that's that's just not a very exciting name for a park. But Joshua Tree National Monument was a much it was a much more exciting term at the time, and so that's what it became. And goodness gracious, we're getting close to almost a century now. You know, over 90 years of protecting what I think is one of the coolest parks in the system. So why was it changed to a national park in 1994? Senator Cranston from California was a big advocate for wilderness and national parks, and he had uh, sponsored some legislation in the Senate. And then Senator Feinstein, one of the very first things she did when she became a senator was to take up that legislation and uh, be able to run it through Congress. The idea was that a national park has certain protections that a monument doesn't have. So Congress you know, passes a public law you know, the law of the land. The, the, our representatives from the House and from the Senate get together and they pass a piece of legislation and the president signs off onto it. It's really difficult to change a law. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, a lot of folks advocate for the creation of parks, whereas monuments are, are created through, through the Antiquities Act. A president can create a monument, but, you know, he or she can't fund that monument. So it's still up to Congress to fund that. And I, I think, you know, at the time, Cranston and then later Feinstein were thinking that, you know, these are, these are special places. This is California's, you know, legacy to the, the people of the United States, pre- preserving Joshua Tree, preserving Death Valley, creating Mojave National Preserve. And that came out of the California Desert Protection Act, uh, which helped, which created Joshua Tree as a national park unit. Is there any uh, effort to expand the park? Uh, what's the future of the area look like? Well, you know, there's there's always there's always efforts. You know, it we work for we work for the president. You know, we are the National Park Service, so we don't advocate for um, for expansion or anything like that because we're not lobbyists. But you know, a lot of our, our partners out there, like the Mojave Desert Land Trust, are always kind of looking at the park, figuring out well, how can we best protect this site. So if there's development that's happening adjacent to the park, you know, partners will often often look for ways to acquire, you know, property to provide wildlife corridors. And we're we're finding now that that's probably the most beneficial thing we can do, not necessarily expanding the boundaries of the park, but finding ways that Joshua Tree can be linked with other public lands. You know, whether that is the the marine base that's just to the north of us, 29 Palms, you know, Marine Base, which has lots of protected lands. I know folks often think that, you know, a base is going to have a lot of damage as as our soldiers and Marines are out there, you know, doing their job. But they, they really take their, their environmental protection responsibility to heart. And, you know, if I can make sure that our, for example, you know, mountain lion population can go from, from one area to the other, that, that's beneficial to the park. So our partners will often look for ways to make these corridors effective. Um, the San Desnona National Monument that was created um, during the Obama administration, that's just to our northwest, you know, making sure that animal populations can make it across the highway. You know, the uh, you just uh, you probably are reading in the news over at Santa Monica Mountains. Uh, they have that new overcross that they're beginning to to fund and, and design that will go over the you know US 101. Right. You know so that so that animals can get back and forth and you don't have those those genetic bottlenecks that have been affecting their mountain lion population. You know the same is true for a park like like Joshua Tree. Can you get bighorn sheep from the Coxcomb Mountains down to the Cottonwood Mountains? Can you get them up to Sheephole Pass? Mm-hmm. And so that's where the 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 you know getting rights and getting purchasing land to allow these connections for me personally is even more important than expanding the boundary of the park. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, tell me about the plant life. Uh, what about the Joshua trees? Are they holding their own, or are they diminishing in number? Ooh, that's a that's a that's a tougher discussion right now. You know, we we've been documenting the plants for decades now, and we have some really really excellent scientific evidence that indicates that at the lower elevations in Joshua Tree, so you know that that kind of three thousand foot elevation, we are not seeing a lot of recruitment, which means we're not seeing a lot of juvenile or young Joshua trees. And there's a lot, lot of different thoughts about why this is happening. Whether it's because the the woody plants that you know shrubs that usually serve as nurse plants for Joshua trees uh, are are disappearing because there's not quite as much water and it's hotter. Uh, there's also thoughts that you know Joshua trees typically need to have a good frost or freeze to induce flowers to bloom, and so we're not seeing a lot of flower production, which means there's not a lot of seed production. But the, the fact of the matter is, at the lower elevations, there are no you know young Joshua trees being born. So the other trees that are there are, are, are surviving. We've had on and off over the last decade, eight or nine years of drought. And, you know, that, that even though these are amazing trees, even though they, they can survive for, for long times without water, you give enough time and you don't give any water at all to a to an organism, it, it's, it's going to be stressed and it's going to die. So I, I have, you know, just personally noted that our, our trees during this drought period, you know, tend to be not nearly as healthy as they were. Um, but, you know, if you go up to the higher elevations in the park, above 4,000 and 5,000 feet, you find thriving communities of Joshua trees. Um, we've had a lot of monsoonal rain this summer, which is, you know, very, very welcome for these plants so that they can, you know, start storing up more water in, in their, their tissue so they can make it through the, the hotter periods of the year. Uh, so my, my main concern right now, Jay, is lower elevations in the park. Uh, we're, we're not seeing recruitment, and then fire at the higher elevations. Joshua trees did not evolve with fire. It is not part of the history of the Mojave Desert. We would get monsoonal rainstorms that would come in in the summer coming up from the Sea of Cortez or coming over from, from Arizona, and you know those would cause lightning strikes. And historically and prehistorically, you'd have, you know, lightning strike that would, you know, kill a Joshua tree or a pinyon pine. It would burn down. It would burn, you know, a few bushes along the way. And that was about it. Now that we have this, this fine exotic grass that spreads throughout the northwestern corner of the park, when you get a, a lightning strike, you know, the tree may go down and it falls into a bunch of grass. The grass takes off. And next thing you know, you've got a 1,000 or a 10,000 10, acre, you know, fire. The, the Sema Dome fire that occurred over in Mojave National Preserve just a few years ago is a great example of uh, what these exotic grasses are doing. So that's, that, that does not pretend well for the Joshua trees in the future, uh, this grass. And that's why I'm, I'm putting a lot of, of time, energy, and money into creating these fire breaks to help protect our Joshua tree populations. Do you have a crew that uh, attacks wildfires when they occur? Yeah, we, we've got uh, both a BLM and a Park Service uh, fire crew in, that, are, that are inside the park. And when they are not fighting fires, they can do fuel reduction. So we, we use them a lot. Uh, we use conservation cores. So these are generally folks, you know, 16 to 25 that will come inside the park during the spring and the fall and, well, even the summer, too, if they're not firefighting, to help us reduce the, the population of grass inside the park. Uh, we, we, we're always looking for, for folks that are able-bodied that, that can go out there that we can hire to, to do work on creating these breaks. 
So you have 250 bird species that have been found in the park. Yes, and that, that <laughs> I, I'd like this this would be a positive interview, but man, there there just been some challenges that have happened recently. Uh, we just got the results a, a couple of years ago. The study, Berkeley and Grinnell were repeating a study that they did throughout California from about close to a century ago, looking at different bird populations and and other species inside the park, and inside of Joshua Tree, they, they went to the key places where we, you know, we typically would find birds, so riparian zones and different plant communities throughout the park, and the results were, were really alarming. Um, you know, that we were seeing a significant drop-off in, in overall uh, species. So, in, in some areas, like a 40% decline in bird diversity. Mm-hmm. In, in other specific areas, here's you know, 55 out of 61 um, surveyed sites saw a decrease in, in species uh, diversity, uh, and that, that's throughout the park right now. There, there are certain species that do really well, like you know, raven populations and, and some other you know, exotic spot populations like starlings, but by and large, the bird populations are on a massive decline throughout the desert. Including roadrunners? Well, you know the the road runners are pretty opportunistic. Uh, they they do well on the the urban interface between the park and the communities. Mm-hmm. So they they seem to be one of the species that's doing pretty well. But you know, a lot of the songbird species, we're not seeing them nearly as much as we did before. Now, for mammals, we did not see a decrease in mammals, though. There seems to be similar numbers of mammals as far as diversity goes from the original survey. Now, with desert tortoises, we, we are seeing a, a big decrease in desert tortoises throughout the park. You know, ab- about a 90% decline in tortoise populations has occurred over about the last 25 to 30 years ago. And we're not sure if this is because of a, of a disease that was passing through the area or if it's because of the drought or if there's some feature that we don't, we don't know at this point. Is that true yeah. in the park or in the whole Mojave area? Well, you know, most of our research is in the park. So inside the park, we're seeing about a 90% increase. I don't have any any evidence right now of tortoise populations outside the park, uh, but definitely here in Joshua Tree, it's a 90% decrease. Mm-hmm. And uh, how about bobcats? Well, that particular population is doing pretty well. The county in, in the northern portion of the park uh, did a ban on on hunting for bobcats or, or trying to catch bobcats, and you know that seems to be beneficial to that particular population. Um, so we're we have not seen a decline in that population. We recently got a donation of about fifteen collars for bighorn sheep in the northern portion of the park. So. The last two years, we have gone out on on two different occasions with with helicopters to to capture bighorn sheep and, and tag them. And we do have a very healthy population of both bighorn and mountain lions because mountain lions have predated on a number of these collared animals, and we've been able to go back and uh, you know document the evidence there. So it, it seems like we have uh, at least the the mountain lion population seems to be doing pretty well, and the the bighorn sheep population they are traveling you know, 
30 miles in a day. I mean, they're, they're going from, from one watering area in the park, they're going down to the Coachella Valley where Desert Hot Springs is, and it's just it's amazing to watch the GPS, you know, that's associated with these animals as they make it from their watering areas, make it into the mountains, make it down to the desert again, stop by and get some water, and then they, they head off somewhere else in the park. So it's, it's pretty special. How are the reptiles doing? Well, I'm going to say the reptiles are, are doing pretty well. I don't have a lot of, of studying evidence on them, but I will tell you that poaching, which was one of the big things when I was a young ranger working at Joshua Tree back in the 1990s that we're really concerned about, that has pretty much disappeared. I think because of captive breeding programs mm-hmm. for, you know, rosy boas and, and the like, you just don't find people, you know, coming out at night trying to steal snakes anymore off the roadways. Because as you know, you know, reptiles tend to, they, they like to warm themselves up in areas and roads tend to be great places to you know, warm themselves. So poachers would come out at night and they would, they would steal lizards and they would steal snake species. You know, my rangers are not seeing that kind of activity. They haven't seen it for 10 years. So uh, at least the animals are being protected that way. And I can tell you personally from living adjacent to the park, uh, the, the snake population does very well in association with rain years. When we have lots of rodents out there, you can expect that in 6 to 12 months, you're going to see a lot more of a variety of, of snake species inside the park. Yeah, a lot of rattlesnakes. Yeah, there are six species of rattlesnakes. I've had about five around the house this, this spring and summer. Most of them very docile animals, you know, are not very aggressive. There is, you know, the Mojave Green is probably the most famous as being a little bit more aggressive than the others. But, you know, on average, we get very few people ever bit by rattlesnakes. I, you know, since I've been the superintendent, I've been here for about nine years, I think we've had three or four cases of someone getting bit by a rattlesnake. You know, historically, it was it was young males getting bit on the, the hands or the face by a rattlesnake as they were handling them. So luckily, that's disappeared a lot. We're not seeing quite as much of that inside the park, but very few folks get bit by snakes. Well, vandalism, as I, we, we've heard, has been a problem at, down at Joshua Tree. Is that abating, or is that still a problem? Well, I, I wish I could say it had stopped, but with you know three million visitors coming into the park every single year, you're, you're, you're bound to find folks that are either ignorant of this being a national park, or you know they are purposely doing bad things. Uh, and I would say graffiti is, is one of the things we always um, try to jump on as quickly as possible. Uh, and you know it happens in a variety of areas. You know the the, the the places that really scares me is, you know, when it's associated with an Indian site. So if we have a rock art site and, you know, someone's going to paint on that, you know, you could be destroying thousands of years of history uh, by, by putting your spray paint on top of, you know, the, the evidence of someone who lived here thousands of years ago. We have a team that jumps on graffiti right away, and it's it's not as simple as going out there and sandblasting it and getting it off of a rock. We, we need to get an archaeologist out there, and she's got to make sure that there's no rock art that's associated with this, this graffiti. I want to send a biologist out there to make sure that we're not going to be disturbing anything as well. And once we've done that, you know, I can send out our trail crew, and they will either try to remove it using something. It's called elephant snot. It is a... Um, it's a solvent that takes the uh, the paint off the rocks, or we actually use a you know water blaster to take it off the rocks as well. So we use you know different techniques. So 
graffiti, I feel like you know the public is on top of that right now. They know it. It's it's unacceptable. You know, I, I think most Americans when they they see it, they know that this, this is a national park. It needs to be protected. I'm not going to stand for this. But it, it still does happen, and we we try to jump on it right away. You know, during the government shutdown a few years ago, you know, we were seeing a lot of folks doing, you know, just driving out into the middle of the desert and camping. You know, they were chopping down, you know, vegetation in order to make fires and things like that. If we stay on on top of things and we communicate and educate the public, that kind of vandalism just doesn't seem to happen. But it's education. If you're coming from outside this area, you probably don't know what a what a special and fragile place Joshua Tree is and how it needs to be protected. David, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you about the International Dark Sky Park. Oh, yeah. Tell about that. Yeah, we are super excited about that. You know, I grew up in, in San Diego, and you know, the closest thing I came to a star was watching a DC-10, you know, fly over San Diego. When you come out to the desert, it is just outstanding to be able to see dark things. So Joshua Tree is uh, a national park. It's got dark sky qualifications. We are an official dark sky park, and we spend a lot of time with our rangers, you know, giving programs. I met a guy the other day. He came into my office, and he, he and his wife were going to come out here, and they said, you know, we just want to spend the night in the back of our truck looking at the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. You know, where can we go? And I, I sent him out into the northeastern corner of the park where there's no artificial light around so he could really watch the night skies. It is a resource that most people don't recognize just how valuable and important it is. Well, we've exhausted our time, but this has been a great interview. Thank you very much, David. No sweat, Jay. It's a pleasure talking to you folks and look forward to seeing you soon. Our guest today has been David Smith, Superintendent of Joshua Tree National Park in Southern California. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association of Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features on our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.